Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Some people meet death with open arms and thank God their time has come. Others beg to be spared for just one more day, saying there's much to be done. But if we, before performing an act, would stop and think of death, of death, of judgment, and of all such things, I'm sure we would do our best, so that when our time comes, we may say, Take me, Lord, without delay. So, Mom and Dad, what do you think? I like that it rhymes, but it's not too rhymy. It's a beautiful poem, Kathy. You're a talented writer. But you're only 16, and you're writing about wanting to die. Oh, Mom, no, I just... What I'm trying to say is that death isn't something to fear if you've lived an honorable life. Maybe I should add some jokes? Before you do, could you tell your sisters to wash up for dinner? Of course. Jimmy says his daughter drives him nuts because she won't stop blasting rock and roll records. Meanwhile, we've got Sister Kathy over here writing sonnets about Catholic guilt. I think we got lucky, Annie. Sometimes I worry about her. She's so thoughtful and so good. And this world doesn't always know what to do with that. Well, if the world doesn't, the Lord will. At the age of 16 in 1958, Kathy Sesnick wrote a poem about living a worthy life and accepting God and death with open arms. It was a sign that the young woman was destined for a spiritual journey, but Kathy's passion for enlightenment would set her on a collision course with the dark side of her beloved Catholic Church. And though she dedicated her life to God, Kathy Sesnick would end up meeting her maker far sooner than she or anyone would expect. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unsolved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the 1969 murder of Kathy Sesnick. This week we'll cover Kathy's upbringing and the teaching job that brought her great joy and deep sorrow. Next week we'll cover the aftermath of her mysterious murder and its ties to a horrifying conspiracy within the church. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Kathy Sesnick was born on November 17, 1942, into a middle-class Catholic family brimming with faith and love. She was the eldest child of Joseph and Anne Sesnick, whose parents immigrated to the U.S. from Eastern Europe. Kathy and her sisters Marilyn, Anne, and Carol grew up in a crowded suburb of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that was surrounded by steel mills. Their father was a postal worker while their mother raised the children. At home, Kathy shared a bedroom with Marilyn, who was six and a half years younger. While Kathy was caring and compassionate, her siblings were a tad wilder. They loved to prank her, and one morning, Marilyn even filled Kathy's shoes with chocolate pudding. She expected her prim older sister to be horrified. Oh, 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 Marilyn, I'll hand it to you. This little trick was especially creative. I'm almost proud of you. But despite the nuisance, Kathy never pranked her sister's back. That just wasn't her way. Kathy practiced patience and love at home, and those attributes were reinforced by her strong Catholic education. Kathy walked half a mile to St. Mary's Assumption Elementary School every day, where she was a model student and well-liked by her peers. She flourished even further at the St. Augustine Catholic High School, where the smart, pretty brunette was both valedictorian and May Queen by her senior year in 1960. The world was Kathy's oyster, and like many girls coming of age in the 60s, she had more options than her mother's generation. Attending college and finding a career was a possibility, just as marrying a nice young man was. But Kathy didn't need options or possibilities because she had a sacred calling. Well, Sister Frances, here it is. My last essay for you. Miss Sesnick. I believe you're the only student here who's actually sad to graduate. I have half a mind to fail you so I can read more of your excellent writing next year. I wouldn't hate that, but my folks might. I suppose I'll just have to give you your A then. What's next for you after graduation? What do you want to be? Oh, Sister Frances, I want to be you. I want to do what you do. You and all the sisters of Notre Dame. You've been a constant blessing in my life from the time I was a little girl. I have to be a part of that. If you're actually serious, I would love to talk with you more. Throughout her schooling, Kathy had been educated and inspired by nuns from the School Sisters of Notre Dame. This international congregation of teaching nuns was founded in Bavaria in 1833, and now Kathy longed to join their ranks. Though Kathy's parents were religious, they likely still had understandable concerns about the life-changing journey their daughter was embarking on. A nun? Really, Catherine? <laughs> I suppose I should have seen this coming when you wrote that poem about death. Mother, you know I've felt the calling since I was a little girl. I thought you'd be proud of me. Of course I am. It's just a big decision for a teenager. Look at the world around you. 
It's the 60s. Things are changing, and you may miss out on them if you pick this path. I don't mind missing out on fads and fashions. I do mind missing out on a chance to do the Lord's work. This is how I'll make him and myself proud. Well, it sounds like your mind's made up, Sister Kathy. It does have a nice ring to it, doesn't it? In the fall of 1960, 18-year-old Kathy took a 250-mile trip to Maryland and entered the Baltimore convent of the School Sisters of Notre Dame. Kathy and her cohort of over 100 women were drawn there by religious passion. But it's likely that many weren't prepared for the rigors of sisterhood. Ladies, collect yourselves. Much better. Now, I know you're all excited, but this noise and chatter will simply not do at Notre Dame. You are not here to just pray. You are here for a, well, to borrow a phrase from the secular world, a spiritual boot camp. Mother Morris, what do you mean? It means even the most well-behaved women may struggle to get used to our ways. You shall rise at five o'clock in the morning for mass and meditation before breakfast. Then it's chores and classes all day with not a moment of idle chatter. And after evening prayers comes the great silence where you will be absolutely silent so that you may better commune with our Lord. Have I scared any of you off yet? (laughs) (laughs) Becoming a Catholic nun was a long process, and Kathy Sesnick was beginning her journey as a postulant, an entry-level nun with no formal commitment to the church. Postulants spent their first six months to a year in the convent, adjusting to life in a religious community and figuring out if they were ready to sever ties with their old secular lifestyle. It was a rigorous routine of chores, meals, and classes, but that rigor was essential. Being a nun wasn't for everyone, and Notre Dame had to make sure their postulants were truly dedicated. Luckily, most of the women adjusted well enough. They were all between the ages of 18 and 21, so the rhythms of their childhood homes and Catholic school life were still ingrained within them. However, the hardest part for many was the nightly great silence. Only months before this, their evenings were a chance to relax, chat on the phone, eat dinner with family, or go out on dates with their high school boyfriends. Now it was a quiet time of prayer and a perfect chance for doubts to creep in. Let's at least chat. Tell me what the problem is. I miss home. I'm not sure I'm cut out for this. I I thought I was, but... Well, maybe you aren't. (gasps) What? But Kathy, God brought me here. Maybe he brought you here to show you this wasn't the right path. Or maybe this is just a test that will only bring you closer to his light. It's not up to us to guess God's will. But I'm always here if you need to chat. (laughs) Uh, Quietly. Thanks, Kathy. You're the best. Kathy wasn't usually a rebel, but she would break the rules if she felt it was important. Her devotion to God never got in the way of her efforts to help and understand the women around her. 
It was a skill she gained while growing up as a big sister to several siblings, and it served her well in her time at the convent. Many former co-postulants recall her kindness and enthusiasm, and it was clear that being a nun was a natural fit for Kathy. Over five years of prayer and study, she advanced to the rank of novice and made her first temporary vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience to God. By 1965, 22-year-old Kathy had finally finished her teaching studies. That meant she was ready to start a job on the most challenging social and spiritual battlefield she'd ever faced. An all-girls Catholic high school. When we return, we'll cover Kathy's new adventure as a teacher and the heartbreak and horror that tested her seemingly unbreakable faith. History, politics, true crime. The new Spotify original from Parcast has it all. Hi, I'm Carter, and I am thrilled to tell you about the new series, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. It uncovers the most damning details surrounding history's most high-profile leaders. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency. From torrid love affairs and contemptible corruption to shocking cover-ups and even murder. She'll expose the personal and professional controversies you may never knew existed. You'll hear some wildly true stories about presidents such as JFK, Thomas Jefferson, Teddy Roosevelt, and more. Very Presidential highlights the exploits you never learned in history class, but probably should have. Family drama, personal vices, dirty secrets. These presidents may have run, but they most certainly can't hide. Follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. In the fall of 1965, Kathy Sesnick found her dream job. The 22-year-old nun accepted a position teaching English and drama at Archbishop Keough High School, an all-girls Catholic school in working-class southwest Baltimore. Though money was tight and many students had troubled family lives, Keough had a staff of priests and nuns eager to expand young minds. Back then, Catholic school nuns had a bit of a reputation as strict old disciplinarians. But over the next few years, every girl at school, from the A students to the troublemakers, discovered Kathy was different. Welcome to Keo. I'm Millie, and you're Nora, right? I'll be your buddy while you get used to life here. Which isn't bad, by the way. I mean, it's school. I'd actually rather be here. Things at home are... What? Things at home are what? Never mind. Can you tell me where the drama room is? That's my first class. Sister Kathy? Yeah. It says we'll be studying Romeo and Juliet, and uh, the idea of reading 
all that lovey-dovey stuff in front of a nun. Oh, sweetie, you're so wrong. Sister Kathy is super passionate about it. I mean, not in a strange way or anything. She just loves old Billy Shakespeare, and if you're lucky, she'll play the nurse to your Juliet. It's so fun. I've never heard anyone call a nun fun. Sister Kathy's like, have you seen that new picture, The Sound of Music? Yes, Baron Von Trapp is such a dreamboat. <laughs> Don't let Father Maskell hear that or he'll lecture you on lust and sin and stuff. <laughs> anyway, Sister Kathy is just like Maria in the movie. She's a nun, but she's young and funny and she even plays guitar. Really? Truly. Kathy's the only sister who's actually like a sister to us. You'll love her. Though the older nuns were strict, the younger teachers were of a different breed. Keo's school song called its students women of a new age, and the young nuns who taught there were two. Especially Kathy, who had a passion for educating the girls in fun ways. Whether it was playing guitar, reading the scandalous Scarlet Letter, or taking her class to see Romeo and Juliet at the movies, Kathy knew how to connect with the kids. Part of this was because Kathy was only in her mid-twenties, less than a decade older than her students. But her attitude was shared by many of the younger staff at Keough thanks to recent changes in Catholic values. Between 1962 and 1965, Pope John XXIII assembled the Second Vatican Council. Thousands of bishops and other clergy met to discuss the Church's doctrines. The world was evolving, and Catholics knew their traditions had to change in order to keep up with the unique challenges of the 20th century. Catholics were now encouraged to meet and pray alongside other faiths, and were encouraged to conduct Mass in local languages instead of Latin. The goal was to be part of the world again, and to fight for positive change. In the 1960s, America was redefined by the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War, and young members of the religious community did not stand idly by. While nuns used to cloister themselves in convents, now they joined protests for peace and equality. While Kathy wasn't a known political activist, she definitely engaged with her students and their world. Other faculties similarly towed the line between the religious and the secular. Father Joseph Maskell was a whip-smart priest in his late 20s who served as the school's chaplain. But he was also the counselor and took courses in psychology at local Maryland universities to complement his religious advice. Maskell was intimidating, and at his previous posting at Sacred Heart of Mary's, he was known for being strict and playing favorites with the altar boys. But after his rather sudden reassignment to Keough, Father Maskell appeared to loosen up. He let students sip Cokes and take cigarette breaks in his office while he counseled them which definitely raised a few eyebrows. But to most, he just seemed like another young Catholic devotee making an effort to engage with the modern world. This effort came with a price, however, as the young priests and nuns were all the more likely to face secular temptations. Shortly after beginning her teaching job, 24-year-old Kathy met a Jesuit priest who would change her life, for better and for worse. Father Gerard Kube worked at Keough and lived at the Jesuit rectory 30 miles away in Annapolis. Koob was only a couple of years older than Kathy and had yet to be officially ordained. Kathy was also still on her temporary vows. 
Soon, she would have to commit herself completely to the church, but for now, she let her heart venture outside of the convent's confines. Kathy and Coob, or Jerry as she called him, struck up an instant friendship that blossomed into something more complicated. They were living their own chaste version of Romeo and Juliet. Only this time, God kept the lovers apart. Kathy was unsettled by these feelings, and if anyone consoled her, it was likely Sister Helen Russell Phillips. 23-year-old Russell was a nun who taught math at Keogh. She was more serious and reserved than Kathy, but the two women shared a deep bond. Kathy, why so glum? Is this about Father Coob? He wants to marry me. What? But he hasn't even seen what you look like under your wimple. <laughs> Russ, you know Jerry and I have been friends for a while. You and I are friends too, but I'm not angling to propose. We've been writing each other a lot, and it's gotten complicated. I vowed to live a life of chastity, but if there's one man who could change my mind, who makes me want marriage and babies, it might be Jerry. So, is the wedding going to be before or after you take your forever vows this summer? There's no wedding. I'll take my vows and Jerry will get ordained and that'll be the end of this, this nonsense. It's what God would want. On July 21st, 1967, Kathy professed her final vows and solidified her place in the church. These vows mended the tiny crack in her faith that her feelings for Coob created. But over the next two school years, something else happened that would fracture Kathy's faith entirely. Nora, why aren't you in class? I was with Father Maskell. Please don't tell me you were smoking in there. It's a bad habit. No, I... He said I needed counseling. Seth's real bad with my folks, so... Oh. Well, Father Maskell has a way with words, so I'm sure he was a comfort. Just hearing him speak at Mask makes me feel better. He's not very religious. I'm sorry? I... I don't know what I'm saying. Maybe I didn't sleep enough last night. Um... Can you help me find the library? Is that a joke? You've been a student here for two years. I know, I just... I can't seem to find my way. Go down the hall, then make a right. But if you're feeling unwell, maybe you should see the nurse. No, I'm fine. Bye now. Kathy noticed something strange was going on with her students. Some were spending an awful lot of time in Father Maskell's office. Sometimes Father Maskell would even call a girl by name over the loudspeaker to pull her from class to go see him. As a chaplain and a counselor with psychology training, Maskell discussed social and spiritual concerns with students. It was no surprise that he got into heavy topics, but Kathy noticed that the girls would exit their sessions in a dazed state. They didn't seem comforted at all. They seemed traumatized. And Kathy began to suspect that Maskell was sexually abusing them. Kathy had to tread lightly. Though Maskell was in his late 20s and only recently ordained, he was well-respected and had worked at two churches before starting at Keogh. In a heavily Catholic city like Baltimore, 
questioning a priest's actions was not an option, especially Maskell, who was also chaplain to the Baltimore police, thanks to his brother's position as an officer. Still, Kathy knew she couldn't ignore this situation, and former students say she found little ways to protect them from Maskell's mysterious counseling sessions. If you analyze the, um, the themes in the Scarlet Letter, it's clear Hester is... Nora Kelly, report to Father Maskell's office. Sister Kathy, can I finish my presentation next time? No. I don't think you'll be able to leave, Nora. But I don't want to upset Father Maskell. Neither do I. But it just occurred to me that I meant to give the class a pop quiz today, and I certainly can't have you miss it. Oh, what? Sister Kathy, today's Friday. Can't wait until- No, Millie. And don't question my authority. Nora, put your things down and stay. I promise it won't be a hard quiz. It's unknown whether Maskell confronted Kathy, but among the insular staff of priests and nuns, it's likely her behavior didn't go unnoticed. Sister Kathy, I'm a little perplexed as to why you wouldn't let Nora out of class. Oh, sorry about that. I had a quiz planned, and Nora needs every chance she can get to improve her grade. Do you know why her grades are so low? No, she's a bright girl, but... Well, I do. See, Nora's got a lot going on at home. Deeply troubling issues that I won't darken your little heart with. Her grades will only improve if I'm allowed to do my work. With all due respect, if something's happening to her, I'd like to know. Sister, you live in a bubble, and you have no idea about some of these girls' lives, their thoughts, what they do after school when they think God isn't watching. You're a priest. You live in the same bubble, don't you? Yes, but I've got more connections to the outside world. You know, my brother's a police officer. I do. The squad's taken a shine to me. Sometimes I go on ride-alongs up to Lover's Lane. You'd be scandalized to see what these girls do after dark. Drugs, drinking, necking. No wonder they can't focus at school. But I help them through their problems, so they won't be a problem for you. Doesn't that make sense? I suppose it does. Thank you for explaining it to me. My pleasure. And remember, sister, I'm always here to talk if you need me. Maskell had a type. The girls he called on were often troubled and vulnerable, so Kathy made sure to keep a close eye on them. However, by the spring of 1969, things had taken a toll on her. Her students noticed that she seemed withdrawn, and she took an unusual amount of days off. This could have been entirely unrelated to the Maskell situation. Kathy was still keeping up a friendship with Father Koob, and since they had feelings for each other, it's possible that she was dealing with her own personal issues. But one of her former students did say that at the end of the 1969 school year, 26-year-old Kathy made a more open effort to confirm her suspicions about Maskell. Nora, you don't like it here at Keo, do you? I... no, I like it fine. Sort of. I don't really feel like talking about it. You don't have to talk, I just... 
How about I ask you a few questions and you can just nod your head yes if I'm right. Does that sound okay? The girl nodded. Is... Uh, are you... Is there someone here at Keo who makes you do things you don't want to do? Physical things. The girl nodded again. Is it Father Maskell? The girl nodded a third time. Oh, my sweet girl. Listen, I want you to run along home, have a great summer, and don't think about school. I promise I'll take care of this. Kathy had gotten a silent confirmation that Father Maskell was sexually abusing a student. Though she likely didn't know all the details, Kathy knew she had to do something about it. But when the school year ended, Kathy's next move came as a complete surprise to everyone who knew her. She left her teaching job at Keough and abandoned her nun's habit to live in the real world. Next, we'll cover the radical changes Kathy made to her life and the strange events of the last day that she was seen alive. Now, back to the story. Kathy Sesnick was a devout Catholic, but in the 1960s, two things pushed the nun's faith to the breaking point. The first was her semi-romantic friendship with a young priest, Father Jerry Koob. When asked if she'd leave the church with him to get married, Kathy turned him down, even though it broke her heart. The second was much more disturbing. Kathy developed suspicions that the chaplain and counselor at Archbishop Keogh High School, Father Maskell, was abusing vulnerable students. Maskell was well-respected and connected to the police, so Kathy knew that going up against him would be risky. For reasons that are somewhat unclear, after the school year ended in 1969, 26-year-old Kathy went to church officials with a significant request. She asked Mother Morris if she could enter a period of exclustration. Exclustration is when a member of the church temporarily lives in the outside world. They move to a normal home and put aside their religious garb for regular clothing while still following their religious tenets. It's a chance for them to experience the real world and gain a new perspective before deciding to either leave the church or permanently recommit to it. It was not an unheard of act, but Kathy's church superiors were stunned that such a devout nun would want to do this. Kathy's parents were upset too, and things got heated when she discussed it with them on a visit home. Kathy, why would you do this to yourself? You have no experience with a regular adult life. I'm a nun, not a Luddite, and I was a regular girl for 17 years. Do you even know how to open a bank account, or or pay your bills, or or fix a flat? I'll learn it all, and I won't be alone. Russ, she's a friend, another nun, she'll be leaving too. We'll get an apartment and figure things out together. Well, that's a comfort. Isn't it a comfort, Joe? We'll see. I I support you, Kathy, and... Maybe I got a little too riled up, but the outside world is a much more dangerous place than the one you're used to. My world is dangerous too, Dad. What does that mean, Kathy? Nothing. Kathy and her friend Sister Russell left the Notre Dame convent and moved to the Westgate neighborhood of Baltimore. 
They found themselves a two-bedroom apartment on North Bend Road in the Carriage House Apartments. It's unknown why Russell left with Kathy. Maybe she had her own curiosity about living in the real world. Or maybe she knew about the Maskell situation. Kathy also took the unusual step of leaving her teaching job at Keough to teach at Western High, a local public school. While it may have seemed like she was abandoning her vulnerable Keo girls, Kathy made sure to stay in close touch with her former students in the fall of 1969. Keo girls often hung out at Kathy and Russell's apartment, chatting, laughing, and helping them with household tasks. It must have been a shock for the girls to see Kathy in modern dresses and with her hair uncovered. But maybe it was easier to confide in her when she was free of her intimidating nun's habit. Kathy allegedly kept checking on Father Maskell and whether he was still targeting vulnerable girls. When her girls said he was, Kathy reassured them it was being taken care of soon. It's hard to know exactly what Kathy's plan was, but it could explain a rather cryptic request she made of Jerry Koob in the week of November 3rd, 1969. Hi, Jerry. It's Kathy. Can we get together this weekend? There's something I'd like to talk about, something serious. I didn't say it was about... Look, I'd rather do it in person, all right? Call me back when you know about Saturday. I'll see you real soon, Jerry. Something serious, huh? Oh, Ross, were you spying on me? Just making sure you're all right. Lord knows you get real worked up about Father Jerry, and talking to him about whatever goes on between you two always makes you feel worse. Why do you assume I want to talk to Jerry about a relationship? Not that we're in a relationship. You said it was something serious, so unless... Oh, Kathy, is this about Maskell? Are you... Russ, the less you know, the safer you'll be. Safer? Kathy, what are you going to do? Make things right. Whatever Kathy wanted to talk to Koob about that weekend was important. But Koob would never get the chance to hear it. Because Friday, November 7th, 1969 was the last day anyone saw Kathy Sesnick alive. At first, it seemed to be another typical Friday. After teaching, Kathy took the time to chat with a student. When asked what her evening plans were, Kathy said she was running an exciting errand. Her younger sister Marilyn had gotten engaged, and Kathy was looking forward to picking up a present for her. After bidding the girl goodbye, Kathy left Western High around 3 p.m. and stopped at her apartment. Around 7 p.m., she packed her purse, slung on her blue coat to ward off the November chill, and got in her green 1969 Ford Maverick. Kathy headed to the Edmondson Village Shopping Center, an upscale block of boutiques and stores a couple of miles from her home. She first stopped off at the bank to cash a check for $255. That would be around $1,800 in today's money, and was certainly a large chunk of change for a public school teacher. But she was planning to pick up an engagement gift, so maybe she needed the extra funds. Then Kathy went to Muley's Bakery to buy fresh dinner rolls. Presumably, she then set out to pick up her sister's present. But we'll never know for sure, because that's where Sister Kathy's trail went cold. Back at the Carriage House Apartments, Kathy's roommate Russell was worried. 
It was after 11 p.m. and Kathy still wasn't home. The women had a curfew at the convent, which they tended to stick to even though they now lived outside of it. Russell had a suspicion that something was wrong, so she made a call for help. Jerry, it's Russell. Kathy isn't with you, is she? No, I'm not implying anything. I just... She left four hours ago to run errands and she's not back. Maybe I'm just a worrywart, but... It's unclear why Russell didn't phone the police, but maybe she felt Jerry Koob's connection to Kathy would make him a more dedicated search partner. Though Koob lived 30 miles away at a Jesuit community in Annapolis, he agreed to come help and brought along his friend, Brother Pete McKeon. After the priests got to the apartment around midnight, the group called the police to report Kathy's seeming disappearance. Officers arrived at 1.30 a.m. and took their statements before promising to start a search. Once the police left, Russell, Koob, and McKeon were at a bit of a loss for what to do next, so they tried to help in the only way they knew how. They consecrated bread and wine, then said a mass for Kathy. They made sure to save some for her, hoping she would come home to join them in worship. But as the bread went stale, their hopes soured into even more anxiety. It was a sleepless night. And being cooped up in the apartment just made things worse. So around 4 a.m. in the early hours of November 8th, Coob and McKeon left Russell's apartment and took a walk around the block. It was supposed to refresh them, but instead, it led them straight to an unsettling clue. I just can't fathom where'd she be. Wait, look, is that? It is. Come over here, it's Kathy's car. Kathy's green Maverick was parked at a cross street, about 50 feet away from the apartment but it was jutting out into the road at an odd angle, like someone had parked it in a hurry and abandoned it. Coob and McKeon raced over to inspect the car, which was not in the condition Kathy usually kept it in. The tires were caked with mud and leaves, as if Kathy or someone else had driven it through a swamp. Even more alarming, the door was unlocked. The car's interior was dirty, and a mess of twigs jutted out from underneath the steering wheel. On the passenger seat side was a box of rolls from Muley's Bakery, but Kathy herself was nowhere to be found. The group knew something was seriously wrong, so they rushed back to the apartment to alert the police of their troubling find. They had no way of knowing that this was just the beginning of a long and painful search for their friend, Kathy. As the Baltimore police raced into action to find the missing nun, They hoped to solve her strange disappearance quickly. But in the days to come, things would only get stranger and more disturbing. That's because this quiet Baltimore suburb would soon be rocked by the vanishing of another young woman who also had ties to Father Joseph Maskell. Join us next week as we learn about the search for Kathy the investigation into her closest confidant, and the evidence unearthed decades later that may prove Sister Kathy was taken down by the very church she loved. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with part two of the murder of Sister Kathy. 
for more information on Kathy Sesnick's murder. Amongst the many sources we used, we found Ryan White's documentary series, The Keepers, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unsolved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unsolved Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Unsolved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Amin Osman, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, KG Tang, Rebecca Thomas, Kimlin Tran, and Jen Wong. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. It's the most powerful position in American politics, and arguably the world. But behind the oath to preserve, protect, and defend lie dark secrets posed to leave some legacies in disgrace. Don't forget to check out the new Spotify original from ParCast, Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers. Every Tuesday through the 2020 election, host Ashley Flowers shines a light on the darker side of the American presidency exposing wildly true stories about history's most high-profile leaders. To hear more, follow Very Presidential with Ashley Flowers free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.